and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Haskin, and I have an album review today of an album that, man, this, it feels like it's been with me my whole life, and it means a lot to me, and I'm hoping that you guys will like it. And it's going to be a short show today because we only have a handful of songs on this album. The reason being is that a couple of them are really long. <laughs> so we're looking at an album that was out in released in October 10th of 1969. So this would be just a, a little less than three years before I would be born. So I wasn't even a thing yet when this album came out. Uh, eventually I would be, though. Don't get scared. Now, the band is made up of some pretty interesting people. Uh, on electric and acoustic guitars, we have Robert Fripp. On drums, percussion, and backing vocals, we have Michael Giles. On lead vocals, bass guitar, we have Greg Lake, who would go on to play with Emerson Lake and Palmer. In On saxophone, flute, clarinet, bass clarinet, mellotron, harpsichord, piano, organ, vibraphone, backing vocals, we have Ian McDonald, or should I say the incredibly busy Ian McDonald. And then on lyrics and credited with illumination, I don't know what that means, Peter Sinfield. So we got a good group of people right here. And, you know, especially with Greg, like leading vocals on anything, you're bound to have something good at the very least. And the guy's a fantastic singer, a great writer. Um, his contributions to Emerson, Lake and Palmer were, were unfathomable. And I'm surprised I can say the word unfathomable, but I've done it twice uh, been a big fan of his for many, many years. The drums on this album are fantastic. The ideas, the transitions. This is definitely something that was, you know, a pioneer in progressive rock. Uh, bands that were willing to just do things that were really off the wall and different and like no one else had ever done. Experimentation, but experimentation that wasn't just, oh, let's try this and see what happens. It was, it was let's try this and see what happens and then we'll put it on the album. So these things were released to the public and the public had to, there had to be some element of, I don't know exactly what to do with this as a listener kind of feel because it wasn't straightforward rock and roll. It wasn't, you know, uh, intro verse, chorus, verse, pre-chorus, chorus, solo, chorus, chorus, chorus. And it was, the songs went where they went and they went to some really interesting places. And I think about, you know, guys like Frank Zappa who, would just write whatever they felt needed to be written for the project. And he did a lot of concept albums. So there would be albums where like 200 motels, which I may get to later, not in this episode, but in a future episode, um, there's a lot of it. That's just kind of like background noise that supported the live show in the movie that for the soundtrack kind of left it a little bit lackluster in my opinion. And so some of the songs might have like a good minute and a half and the song is six minutes long. Whereas with a band like King Crimson, when they ventured into different ter territory, they really went there, you know, and the song In the Court of the Crimson King has multiple parts within the song. And uh, they, they really were adventurous on this album, I have to say, and thinking that there really wasn't much out there in the way of music like this prior to this album coming out. I think it's a very innovative album. I can't remember exactly when this album came into my existence. I want to say I was probably in the seventh or eighth grade. I know that every morning, it had to be before eighth grade started, though, because I know that every morning before I even got out of bed, 
I had the LP, but I made a cassette of the song in the Court of the Crimson King. And that was the first thing I would do every morning. I would just lay there with the headphones plugged into my stereo next to my bed. And I would listen to the song in the Court of the Crimson King. And then I would, you know, get up and do whatever I had to do to get ready for school. But that was what made this album for me more of an autumn album because growing up in Michigan, I had that song in my head, riding my bike to my friend Brian's house, where we would then walk the rest of the way to school. But, and then I had drafting class. I remember drafting was my first class and I would still have the song in my head. So it really reminds me of that time, the smell of egg corns and wet leaves on the ground. And, you know, just, just the way Michigan was in the early fall coming from Labor Day for like those first couple of months of school. And I just have very vivid sensory memories when it comes to this album. But I could listen to this album anytime. You know, it's it's very powerful. And because Greg Lake was in this band, when the Carl Palmer or Carl Palmer's Emerson Lake and Palmer Legacy Band would play out, and I've seen them twice now, um, very interesting show, but they would do the first song off the album, which we're going to get to here in just a second, which I thought was cool because it was really a tribute to Greg Lake. Carl Palmer was never in King Crimson, but because Greg Lake was, they would do the song. And I really thought that was cool. And they did such a stunning version of it too. Um, The last time that I saw them perform, Arthur Brown sang this song and he did a pretty damn good job of it, I have to say. I really didn't know what to expect out of Arthur Brown. Um, He dressed very interestingly He was very energetic on stage, sounded fantastic. I mean, the only thing I really know from him is The Crazy World of Arthur Brown, which came out in the late 60s as well. So this was a a real treat to hear him sing something other than that and to hear what he sounds like currently. But he really did these songs some serious justice, I have to say. But let's just listen to it. The first song off the album is 21st Century Schizoid Man. I do want to be absolutely fair and say that there is a pre-intro to where I started. It really just sounds like a ship coming into shore for some reason. Don't really know how it relates to the song exactly. But I thought, you know, because you only get a short clip of the song on this show, didn't want to spend that um, bringing that boat into shore. So we're just starting with the actual song. Um, It's interesting because it does feel to me like the bass drums are somewhat off. You know, the drums aren't incredibly tight. Uh, throughout parts of this album, but it just, it works, you know, dragging those drums. Maybe it's just because I know it so well that way. So if it throws you off a little bit, I could certainly understand that. But overall, it's got a great sound to the album and I am not listening to the remastered version. I'm listening to the original version as it was transferred to CD. I'm sure there was some element of cleanup uh, done for this by the time they got to these albums. If you remember when we talked to Randy Rohrbach, who was one of the people that was involved with that in the beginning, where they didn't 
really do much in the way of EQing things for the digital world. They just basically transferred everything with a clean, as clean of a recording as they could find. Um, eventually, they started, you know, remastering uh, analog audio for CDs so that they could try and recreate some of that warmth into the digital world, which tends to be a little bit more uh, colder. You know, in the way of sound, um, you lose some elements of the presence of the album if you just flat transfer it to CD. So you have to kind of compensate for what you're going to lose. So they're they're doing up, you know, more warming up techniques and that now in the remastering. But uh, this song sounds good, even as it is, you know, uh, without a remastered version. I think the mix is really good. I love the brass that's in it. I love the feel of it. The drums sound great. They're really dry but they sound great. Um, it's interesting to hear this whole album with such dry drums. Um, I like it, actually. But again, I have to be fair and go back to, is that the nostalgia? Is that because I know the album so well this way? I honestly don't know. So I want to be as fair as I can. And on that, I'm not sure how impartial I can be. It's just so, you know, let's let's leave that as the premise for this entire album. Because this is an album, like I said, I've had forever. I had it on 8-track. And it changed in the weirdest places, let me tell you. But uh, great song. It's really powerful. There's points that are like this. There's points that are jazzy. There's a part where it slows down and then they all speed up together again. And keep in mind, this is well before metronomes were used in recording studios for rock music. Metronomes had been invented. Beethoven uh, paved the way for that. But uh, it wasn't something that was common practice for rock musicians to use in a studio. So all the stuff that they did, they had to be really tight together. You know, it isn't like now where the drummer can go in and record their parts on a completely different day from the guitar player. Um, some bands choose not to do that. And I think the projects tend to come out better when they don't, unless the musicians are just really top notch or really, you know, in tune with what each other are doing. I think that live feel can bring out a performance in others that you can't necessarily get or get as easily while playing isolated from each other as a lot of bands are learning through COVID. But they had to be playing together. And this section in the song that I'm referring to, um, it just, it speeds up and then it goes into this jazzy part that's just phenomenal. And then it goes back into the verse again. I love the effect that Greg Lake is using on his voice there. It sounds really dislocated from the song. You know, he's there volume wise, maybe it's slightly too quiet, but I think that's because of the effect. But he's he's distanced from the song, almost like an observer. And that's kind of the way that the lyrics go, too. So it really works. But it's a fantastic song. And what an impression that this makes being the opener for the album. I think it's just a killer song. It's a great album opener, probably the best choice that they could have for the album, for sure. I definitely would have put in the Court of the Crimson King last on the album in the Court of the Crimson King. But uh, yeah, that's what I would have done, uh, or I'd like to think I would have done had I been the one producing the album. Again, it's so easy to make those decisions when I'm not there, when I already know what the decision was that was made, and I'm not responsible for it. So if I sound like I'm being a little bit of a Monday morning quarterback, I probably am. Don't mean to be, but I would like to think that I would have basically stuck with this song order. Um with only five songs on the album, you really have to pick and choose carefully. And I think they did a great job with that as well. So that is our first song, 21st, 21st Century Schizoid Man. Excellent tune from King Crimson. Um, and, you know, before we go any further, I really should talk about the album cover. Oh, my God. I love this album cover so much that I painted it onto a jean jacket. 
I'm going to have to remember to post that in the Facebook group. Um, I was not a great painter. I loved watching Bob Ross and trying to mimic what he did and basically painting what would be, uh, you know, a jungle in hell while he's painting this beautiful waterfall. Um, I tried and it was, it was that I had fun. I was not aspiring to be some great Picasso or anything like that. I just enjoyed doing it. But when I saw people were painting jean jackets with album covers, there was a guy at my school in Detroit. I want to say his name was Ravel. That name is coming to mind. I was trying to think of it the other day and I couldn't, and I didn't think I was going to think of it. And then it just popped into my head. I want to say Ravel was his name. And he painted uh, jackets for people. He did like Master of Puppets, Ride the Lightning, a couple albums of Megadeth. I mean, it was all like the metal stuff, you know, but I really loved the concept of that. So the first jean jacket I ever painted was Deep Purple and Rock. It took me forever to do it, but I had such a good time. I think I did a pretty good version of it. I mean, there was not a huge amount of detail, like all the rocks and all of that. But I think the gist of it, the faces on Mount Rushmore of Deep Purple, I think I captured that pretty well. Uh, I would love to take a picture of it and show it to you. But when my ex uh, and I were splitting up, she just said, can I have this? And I'm like, yeah, and never really had any idea that I would go on to regret that so hard later. I also took what were called paint markers and on the sleeves of the jean jacket, because I think this was the only jean jacket I had that I didn't cut the sleeves off of. Um, I had written down in different fonts, like the font of the band, all these bands that I love. So I had like, you know, Metallica was on there and Rainbow and uh, Split Ends and Queensryche and you know, any, any band that I could think of that I was really into ended up on the jacket until I pretty much ran out of room. Uh, but it became a conversation piece and a way to meet people. I remember when we moved from uh, Detroit to Colorado, people would say, oh, I don't see this band on there. And I'm like, oh, I don't know who they are. Uh, Queensryche was actually a band that was not originally on the jacket until one of my classmates told me about them. And then uh, Operation Mindcrime came out. I heard it, fell in love with them, put Queensryche on the jacket. I think that was the last name I actually added, if I remember right. Um, but, you know, Uriah Heep was on there, Led Zeppelin, King Crimson was on there. But the back of the uh, second jacket that I painted was the album cover of In the Court of the Crimson King. Uh, it, not perfect by any means, but for my skill level, I think it actually came out pretty good. I will try and remember to post a picture of that in the uh, Facebook group. Um, really proud of that one. It was, it was cool. But uh, then the third and final one I did, actually, I think the King Crimson jacket does have sleeves too. Uh, the third and final one I did was a very simple one. It was the, uh, the Crimson Ghost from the Misfits. Um, you know, no, no huge challenge there because it's a very simple design as opposed to the other albums I did. I really would love to do a, another one. I don't really have the time to do anything like that. And I don't see reasonable available time coming up because the other projects that I'm working on are, are more important to me. Plus I don't have any acrylic paints anymore. Um, I remember you had to use like a polymer gel to coat the jacket with afterward to prevent the paint from cracking. Um, down the road, it's probably going to at some point anyway, but it's kind of like with tattoos, you know, you get them retouched, but you put lotion on them, um, you know, hopefully every day or every couple of days, especially if you live in the desert like I do. And you, uh, you know, you have to keep them lubricated so that the design doesn't get messed up and all that. Um, but it's kind of the same with the jean jackets. You had to coat them with a polymer gel when you were done painting. I think you might've even done like the one layer of it before you started painting. I can't remember now. 
But in any case, you know, if you don't really take care of those things over time, they're going to crack and they're going to look like old paintings that you see at the Louvre. Maybe not ones that would actually make it to the Louvre, but, you know, the the way that they have deteriorated over time. Uh, but I loved it. So I'll try to remember to put that picture in. If I don't, somebody give me a shout or something and um, I'll go ahead and add it. Um, hopefully I'll remember, though. So, uh, so yeah, the album cover is fantastic. I mean, it's just this Crimson King, um, the face of him. He's kind of either very surprised or terrified or uncertain, but he's not ha- appearing to have a good day. And then when you open up uh, or, or unfold the LP and maybe the CD booklet too, I don't know, um, but unfolding the LP, it was like he had like a layer of ears and then the whole like part of his head just kind of trailed out. Um, and then on the inside of it, you had a very welcoming moon, round moon, the full thing, you know, not the crescent that we usually see rec- uh, representing the moon. Um, and it's just got, you know, a handout just kind of saying, hey, you know, take a, a little bit of a, a trip with me. And uh, I really like it. It's, it's a great album cover. I love the colors. I love the crimson. I love the blues. I love the the whites that are all blended together to make the Crimson King's face. Interestingly, and I don't know if this is actually related or just rumored to be related, but in Stephen King's Dark Tower series, he refers to the Crimson King uh, a few times, especially as the series uh, goes on towards the end, if I remember right. And And forgive me, it's been a very long time since I've read those. But uh, he referred to the Crimson King, and I do believe it would be reasonable to make that connection to the fact that he was talking about this song in the Court of the Crimson King or the Crimson King character within the song in the Court of the Crimson King um, just by way of what was going on in the story. And I, I can't remember, unfortunately, I've lost those details. Maybe some of those of you out there who have read that series or uh, have read up on the connections would know a little bit more about that than I do. I have a hard time with that stuff because as I've said so many times with so many things I've tried to research, there's just too much information out there. And unless you talk to the people that are involved and they happen to remember the details you're looking for, which a lot of times they don't, um, it's just impossible to know what the real truth is. A lot of the stuff that's on the internet is speculation. So I take it all with a grain of salt. Um, Respectfully, of course, because uh, I'm sure people mean well, but a lot of times, um, personal opinions and suggestions or reasonable deductions are displayed as fact. And I don't like that. So I don't really like to spread things that are not necessarily true that I don't know for a fact. Now, I can make mistakes on the show, and that is fair. I do have to apologize. Thank you very much, Nate, from the Deep Purple podcast for pointing this out to me. The album Let It Be was not produced by George Martin. Uh, I was actually really shocked to hear that. I thought he had done all their albums, so I didn't bother to look, you know. Uh, So in all fairness, thank you, Nate, for letting me know that it was not Sir George Martin. It was Phil Spector. And of course, because there's a change and because it's the Beatles, there comes with controversy over, you know, kind of what he did that they weren't aware of, that they weren't anticipating for the album. You know, and it's another one of those cases where I, and you're probably sick of me saying it, but I have to say, I'm so used to hearing it the way that I know it, to hear it without some of those orchestral elements. I don't know how I would feel about it, but there is an album version of it called Naked, and that actually puts it more in perspective of what they were expecting um, without Phil's touches on that. So at some point, I think I'd really like to hear that and you know, see how I feel about the songs, but, and it's going to be hard to, you know, take the the instruments away that I'm so used to hearing. 
And I wonder what they would have done necessarily differently had they not, you know, maybe they had different ideas and he's like, oh, I'll take care of it. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I haven't heard it yet. Haven't read much up about it. I have heard of, of it. And then uh, when I was talking to Nate about that episode I did on my review of Let It Be a couple weeks ago, um, we uh, he he let me know again about the Naked album because I kind of, you know, cast it aside, not really remembering it. But it's on my my, you know, eternal list of things to check out. I think I would like to hear it. But I think it has to be when I'm in the right place to be open to hearing different versions of songs, because if you're not in the right place for it, you're automatically not going to like it. Oh, this isn't what I know, or that sucks because it's not what I'm used to. And I don't want to do that. I want to be really fair with everything that I experience, especially for the first time. So thank you, Nate, very much for the correction. I appreciate that. Uh, I meant to mention it on last week's show and uh, just forgot because I was all excited about that album. So um, correction made. Thank you very much. Um, the next song on this album, like, so we come out with this really powerful song saying here, this is going to be an intense album, even though it's only five songs, you're going to get your money's worth, uh, in every song. So they immediately dial it down though, to, I talk to the wind. The straight man to the late man. Where have you been? I've been here and I've been there and I've been in between. I told. It's a bit gentle, but it's also a bit jazzy at the same time. I love that contradiction to it. Love the the um, percussion, you know, just hitting the ride cymbal like that. Um, I love the fact that there's two flutes, one in the left and one in the right ear, very clearly defined. Um, just sounds so gorgeous. And I love that jazzy feel to it. I mean, he almost could have used brushes on this song. And I think at one point he might have switched to them. But it really does sound good. Um, the whole song pretty much stays in this vein. Uh, it gets a little more playful later on during the flute parts, but it's vocally, it's just such a gentle song and one that, you know, you just kind of feel like you're floating on a cloud. You're just going to go on the ride with them. I really love this song. It's very beautiful. Um, for a while, this was actually my favorite song on the album when I used to do that, when I used to be the kind of person that would have to rank everything. Um, it was one that was kind of a go-to song for me. And then, then I just started really getting into the song in the court of the Crimson King. Um, I, I, just a, a beautiful song. I mean, they're all great songs. I didn't like the fourth song, Moonchild, very much. It took me a long time to grow on to that one. I, I thought it was kind of boring. But as I grew older and, and you know, my musical taste and appreciation grew, that one became a, a song that, that I would eventually go on to really love. But the next song that we have on the album is, oh man, it's it's such a powerful song. It is called Epitaph, and it includes um, a mini song within a song, because they do that a lot, you know, uh, this band. But uh, 
within the context of the song, and they do that a lot in the song uh, in the Court of the Crimson King, but um, it's the uh, the march for no march for no reason. I think it is. Um, yeah, just a beautiful, beautiful song. So let's get into that one. You tell I like it. love at the beginning the sound of that mellotron those strings just just sound fantastic it's one of my favorite sounds uh from this band or really any song it just has such an edge to it i love the overall production on this album by the way and again it could be a bit nostalgic it could be remembering those uh egg corns and the wet fall leaves in michigan but i i've just always loved the overall production of the album the sound is really good i normally would complain at this point that the vocals are too quiet but knowing where the song goes, I think it's very uh, targeted. I, there is a part at the end where he repeats the uh, verses again, and it is just, it's powerful, it's pleading. I think it's one of Greg Lake's best vocals that I've heard, and I, I just love that. It's so powerful. There's timpani in here that just adds such a level of intensity. Um, it, it really, it's, it's almost a pleading song you know in so many ways but musically it's it's just a powerful song um it goes into uh you know the the chorus part um has that features that mellotron again in just very very beautiful way but it's a it's a great song it's one of those songs that i can sing once out of every three years and think i've done a pretty decent job of course i can't sing anymore uh but back when i could and i think uh you know, I, I would like to think that there were at least a couple times in there I sang it pretty well, because it's not even about singing the words or singing the notes. It's about the emotion. It's about pulling out your heart and putting it on the table for people to see, because that's really what he does in this. And I think it's just amazing the the level of intensity that, that Greg Lake brings to this in the vocals, especially as the song goes on. Here at this point, he's almost kind of catatonic, right? Kind of numb to what's going on and just stating it more matter-of-factly. And through the song, I feel like he realizes that, you know, what's going on here is wrong. We've got to make changes. And he's just pleading for those changes to be made. Uh, so I was right. It was uh, March for No Reason. Uh, but there is another part called uh, Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And I'm not sure exactly where those divide. I would imagine that when the music changes drastically, that's probably where they're thinking um, those changes happen. I don't know if they were recorded separately and, and, you know, how all that was done. But for whatever reason, they added these parts to the title to break up the song a little bit. 
Um, but it is a great song. It, it really is. It's one that just grips me every time I hear it. It's one that I actually often crave listening to. It'll just get in my head, whether it's the Mellotron or the vocals or something that'll pop into my head, and I just have to listen to it. And uh, that craving won't go away until I do. Uh, then it gets bigger after I listen to it. So I have to listen to it a couple more times before my brain settles down. But yeah, it is one of my favorite songs. It's a very powerful very emotion-driven. The music is just dramatic. Um, it's almost film soundtrack-like without having a film to be a soundtrack for. It's that moody and, and dramatic. So um, check it out, guys. Check out this full song, because if uh, if you have the ability to feel, I think this might be one that you'll want to hear. And uh, I'd be curious to see what you feel when you check it out. So feel free to let me know. Uh, the fourth out of five songs is the one that I said took me a while for it to grow on me. It is a very elegant song. Um, it's just very slow paced, you know, more slow paced than the start of this song or, uh, or I talk to the wind. Um, it really is more kind of like what I was talking about with Frank Zappa, you know, where there's just a lot of stuff that happens, but there's parts where I'm like, it almost feels like it belongs to another project. It's not really meant to be sat and listened to just musically because, coming especially coming off of all these other songs and having in the court of the crimson king follow it it just feels like it's it's like they're like okay well we've got enough for the song let's go ahead and record it that's how i felt in the beginning which is why i didn't like it but as like i said as time went on i absolutely grew to love this song and maybe you will too here is moonchild including the dream and the illusion So much like I Talk to the Wind, it's a pretty gentle song. It doesn't ever really get heavy or anything like that, but it just has a, a lovely way about it. It's a very gentle piece and one that, again, I think you can just kind of feel like you're sitting on a cloud and float away with. Um, well worth listening to. Still my least favorite on the album, but uh, only because it's rare that I crave that kind of song with a band like this. You know, I would rather hear a song like Epitaph or In the Court of the Crimson King when I think of King Crimson, um, even though I Talk to the Wind is a much more mellow song, it's very lyrical. You know, it gives you something a little more to follow where there's just large instrumental chunks in this song. And it wasn't really in a direction that typically is something that I would crave. Uh, still a good song nonetheless and well worth listening to. So that brings us to our final track, In the Court of the Crimson King. And that includes... The Return to the Fire Witch, 
in the dance of the puppets. So uh, interesting timing, actually, now that I'm working on my album. Um, well, it might be out by the time this comes out, but my album, um, The Forgotten Puppet Show, uh, there is involvement with puppets in this song. And um, it, it's really fantastic. I mean, you can you can definitely tell that they were going for something very different. It is a song that really has a longevity to it, but it, it's one that takes you in a lot of different directions. At times, it's a patient song as they're coming out of the chorus, which is really, you know, more a bunch of awes and music than anything else. Uh, not a chorus is like a, you know, repetitive vocal lines or anything like that. Um, but it's just got a mellowness to it that really works with the music behind it. And I've always loved that. Um, there's a, a time when the, the song sounds like it collapses but then a calliope comes back to save it, which is definitely an unexpected sound. You you know you think more of a carnival for the sound of a calliope, but it really works here. Um, really interesting lead-ins with the percussion. Great, great percussion in this song. I love the drum rolls. Um, I love the way that the song just kind of goes on and on at the end. It's it's one of those songs that, uh, as I've said with other songs on the show, I feel like it's a party that I don't want to end. They could just keep going and going, and I would love it. Um, kind of like the song, uh, I want you by the Beatles, you know, how it just repeats over and over again. Um, I, I just love that. And it's one of those that I just kind of really don't want it to stop. Yes, I could start the song over, but then I'm starting at the beginning of the song. I want those moments, you know, those, those moments that are really making me happy to just keep going on and on. But the, the drum rolls are very creative in this. Um, it's, it's just a, a big song. I have not had the opportunity to see King Crimson live. I would love to. I don't know who's still in the band that is an original member, but I think the their music is just something that's really different from every other band. You could probably compare them to certain things maybe, but I really think that they were a band that their sound, their style, their writing, the directions that they were willing to experiment with really are something that was very specific to that band. They probably had a lot of copycats over the years, I would imagine. But, um, you know, the jazzy elements, the bluesy elements, the rock, the progression, uh, it, it's just such a great band. And this song in particular, um, you know, like I said, I used to listen to it every morning. This was the song that would set the tone of my day. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure that made a lot of sense, but <laughs> but that's what I did. So that's what you get. Uh, fantastic song, though. Um from the very opening, that is the the feel of the song, the sound of the song, the edge that it has, the character of it in the sound. Just such an amazing journey, this one. And if you're not familiar with it, I highly suggest that you take a listen. If you like prog at all, um, if you like songs that are just written very well and interesting and take you in unexpected directions, this is the song. I, this would be one that I would put on that list for you to check out. So let's take a little taster of it. Here is In the Court of the Crimson King. Change. 
the tournament's begun. The purple piper plays his tune, the choir softly sing. Three lullabies in an ancient tongue for the court of the crimson. It's such an image-oriented song, you know, uh, using a lot of colors and characters. It's really an adventure, and I love following it. I love following the music of it. I think there's some really creative and innovative stuff. Even just that last uh, drum beat that we were listening to as the song faded out, not something that you would expect, you know, and there's a lot of that on this album just doing things that, wow, I wouldn't have chosen that or I wouldn't have seen that coming or I wouldn't think a band would go in that direction. That is this album. And that is one of the things that I loved about it when I first heard it. And to this day, I still enjoy, even though I know what all the changes are, even though I know the album very well and know what's coming, I still enjoy those choices. And for me to have been listening to this album for decades and still come off feeling the same way about it uh, even just now listening to these clips. Um, I love that. I love that. I haven't lost the joy of this album. You know, um, one of the earlier albums that I remember being into, but certainly one that is still to this day, very close to my heart. And I hope that you guys enjoyed the clips. I hope that you'll check out the album. If you're not familiar with it, um, if you are, maybe you'll go listen to it. Maybe you already have it and you're going to go put it on your, your turntable or your CD player right now. I don't know. Um, but in any case, it's definitely an album that if you like interesting, innovative, don't know where it's going kind of music, then this is a band well worth checking out. I also have their al album Lark's Tongues and Aspic, which is a, another really good album. It doesn't quite grip me with the intensity that this one does, but it was one that, that uh, actually my friend Scott turned me on to many years later. And so I was kind of like, afraid to listen to it a, a little bit because it's like, I know this one album by the band very well. I don't know what directions they took after or what they had done before. So I was afraid that it might ruin it. So I tend to be very tentative listening to that kind of music. You know, I listen to it, but at a distance because I don't want it to, it's silly. I know because if I like this, there's a good chance I'll like stuff on that album. And I actually do, but I don't think that the songs um, for me at least are quite as, in-depth and interesting. They don't have that charm that this album does for me. So while I enjoy it, it's not one that I have listened to more than a handful of times for those reasons. Whereas it's like going to a restaurant and ordering something that you already know that you're going to love. So you order it. I know I love this album. So if I'm going to spend the little bit of time that I have available to listen to music, I'm going to spend that time going more to my go-tos than I think anything else. And this is certainly a, a, an album that I I just cherish. I really do. I know I said this show was going to be a shorter show. Apparently, I was wrong because I had a lot more to say than I thought I did. But uh, it's a great album. It's really worth uh, taking the time to dig into it. I hope you guys enjoy it. I, if you're not familiar with it, I hope you'll check it out. Maybe you'll enjoy it. Maybe 
it'll it'll lose you. Um, for me, it stands the test of time. But again, I this album has been a part of my life, so I always have to go with that honesty. Of it could just be a lot of nostalgia as well. But uh, thanks for checking it out. Thanks for hanging out with me for another episode of the show. We'll be back next week with another episode of the show. You guys take care of yourselves and take care of each other, please. Cheers. <laughs>